Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Martin Corot, co-founder of Fincom, on a mission to help founders and CFOs of digital companies gain insights and make better decisions by providing them with a real-time 360 view of their business performances. And it's absolutely great to, to talk with you today because you also come from a PE background. So, you know, what we're dealing with at SaaS Group. So great to have you here, Martin. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, um, like I said, you've got a P background and um, overall, I just read a bit of your story and it's pretty fascinating. So can you maybe uh, talk a bit about yourself first? Absolutely. So, yeah, I come from a pretty, I mean, like, I guess you would say traditional background. Um, like I attended business school in Paris. Uh, and back in the days, you know, investment banking was still seen as, you know, very prestigious. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to try my hands at that. So I moved to London. I spent a year working for Goldman Sachs, then working for Morgan Stanley. Um, it was a great experience, uh, but, you know, you're kind of, uh, you know, stuck in your steel and glass tower in a big city and you're kind of far away from actual businesses. So I thought, mm, you know, what, am, what could I do that? will give me some more, you know, uh, proper experience and, you know, ground experience. So I joined a strategy consulting firm called Roland Berger in Paris. Uh, I stayed there for about three and a half years, um, worked on around 25 projects, and I did see a lot of industries. So again, great experience. And, and after three and a half years, I thought, you know, finance is really my thing. Um, invest the investment side of things uh, seems super interesting. Uh, I did it on the sides in public markets and I thought, well, you know, private equity kind of seems like the next logical step. Uh, so I wasn't being super original. So I joined a mid market <laughs> private equity fund based in Paris, uh, stayed there for about four years. And it was a fantastic experience because the, um, the team was really a fantastic, uh, uh collection of very talented individuals. And after four years, you know, I saw that a lot of things were happening really at the crossroads between finance and tech. Uh, I had always wanted to try my hands at entrepreneurship. Uh, so I thought, you know, uh, I was 30, 32 at the time. I thought now is probably the right window to do it. Um, you know, I don't have any kids yet. Uh, so I thought, yeah, let's go. So I teamed up with Vincent and Lucas and we launched Fincom and that's about it. Okay, that's a fascinating story. It's great to see people that had this amazing experience digging super deep into, into the market where they eventually launched something. So I think it's it's also a great sign for investors. And you guys went with a VC funding for Fincom. So um, after so many years in, in finance, was it easier for you to, to understand what they're looking for? Was it easier to get the metrics that they were looking for? And uh, I don't know, maybe your personal connections network helped. Mm, yeah, so it did give us uh, a pretty significant head start. Uh, you know, starting, of course, with anything to do with what you put in the pitch deck. So that is metrics, you know, the business plan. We had this 
this big Excel model because you know that's what we did as investors. My uh, co-founder Vincent is also a private equity uh, investor. Um, he spent eight years in another mid-market uh, PE fund in uh, in Paris. So you know we knew what the expectations were in terms of figures that we had to deliver, in terms of the forecasts, and in terms of you know the granularity uh, that we had to deliver in order to raise funds. Um, so that was of course a big help. Uh, second thing that really helped is when it came to, of course, negotiating the terms and the structuring of the investment. That used to be our full-time job. So, you know, drafting the term sheet, drafting uh, the shareholders agreements, you know, the, the share purchase agreement. All of that was something that we were able to to do pretty quickly and on terms which, you know, are we, we view as quite favorable to us because we, you know, that, that was part of what we did. And um, we had all the 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 good reflexes and the good knowledge. Uh, and that really helped us secure the funding really fast, which was good because, um, you know, we secured funding. Uh, well, you know, inflation was starting to rise, the war in Ukraine was going on. So we could see that the window for VC financing kind of shutting down. And we thought, wow, we really have to to deliver on this fundraising else, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to move forward with our, uh, with our ro- roadmap. Um, in terms of connections, um, not so much because we were on the private equity sides and, you know, so we are uh, the boring guys wearing suits. We're not the hip, cool VC guys. And we didn't know that many um, VC guys, but it really helped us, you know, uh, gathering a network of business angels that were willing to supplement uh, the, the money that was put in by, uh, by Excel. Um, so overall, yeah, it really did help us. And, um, uh, you know, it really helped us get to where we are today. Okay, it's fun that you said we're not the hip cool VC guys and we're boring PEs, and that's that's exactly like the perception of a PE company that we're trying to change at SaaS Group. Like we are the cool hip PE. <laughs> so <clears throat> awesome! So it gave you a really like head start uh, with with the financing. But why did you choose this route in the first place? Because I feel like. Um, yeah, maybe like three, four years ago, especially when it was super easy to raise funds, uh, you were not even considered successful if you are not uh, on, um, what is it, Tech TechCrunch uh, blog where, you know, they announced that you raised $3 million. Uh, now it's a bit more uh, favorable towards bootstrapped uh, startups. So why did you choose uh, when the window was already closing? to go uh, with the VCs. Absolutely. I mean, we considered going the, the bootstrapping uh, way. Uh, a lot of our clients are bootstraps and, you know, we just have a lot of respect for uh, for that choice. Uh, and I think it really enforces a discipline, which is, you know, really uh, makes companies really successful, especially in the current markets. We did choose to raise uh, because it made sense, because we thought that, you know, we have an ambitious product roadmap, you know, the vision we have uh, and the value proposition that we're trying to deliver is going to take uh, quite a bit of resources in terms of, you know, development. So we're going to have to hire uh, a fully blown product team. It's going to take a, um, a lot of resources in terms of sales and marketing. And we thought if we want to deliver on our business plan, if we want to achieve this vision within uh, a reasonable time frame, we're going to need some dry powder, as the old boring P guys call it. Um, and that's why we decided to raise. Okay. All right. So I'm just uh, uh, always rem- remembering another uh, episode that we did with the founder of Butter uh, when he said, um, 
when you decide between bootstrapping or going after a VC round, it's uh, your decision points are ambition and competition. So in your case, it was, uh, I guess, mostly ambition, right? You wanted to, to really go out there fast and, and win the market. So um, great that you mentioned that you're serving other SaaS companies, especially bootstrap SaaS companies. And uh, some may argue, and that was also the case when, when I was uh, working for a startup, um, serving other SaaS companies is like, it, it sounds amazing. And, you know, you, you feel great because you're, you help other, other uh, companies and other founders that are super inspiring, but it may not be um, the wealthiest market. Right. So you really have to be very careful with your pricing strategy and with your branding. Uh, so when I read your uh, what you were doing, um, you were uh, you are serving founders and CFOs of, of bigger companies. And I thought, OK, so the CFOs are there like the market that is going to bring you the money and um, the sales founders are probably people that are going to to still keep you in that cool um cool space right cool startup so um what's what's the market that you're focusing on and why did you choose it absolutely you make a very interesting point which is you know who is the what is the core market for us and how do yeah. we get to sell because as you mentioned they're not necessarily the wealthiest clients especially in the current environment everybody's cutting costs Everybody's being really careful with the cash burn. Everybody's monitoring their runway like crazy. Um, and so what we see is that our value proposition is really relevant uh, once our clients have reached a certain stage of development. We place it currently at around 700,000 euros in ARR. That's the stage where you know you have a lot of KPIs that you're, you start to need tracking. And that's the stage where if you don't track your churn, you're putting your entire company at risk. So that that's the stage where it's where it makes sense to, you know, get a tool that's going to do that for you on a, you know, on a live basis day to day. And what we see is that in order to sell to clients who are currently under a lot of pressure because funding is scarce, because growth is slowing down. I mean, we see it in our, our, our clients, uh, growth lines, you know, growth is kind of slowing down. It's all about ROI. It's all about proving that you can deliver a value that is substantially greater, and I'm talking 10 times greater than the price they're going to pay for the tool. And we achieve that by you know, doing an onboarding that's really white glove at the moment and by really listening to our clients in order to add the features on our roadmap that are going to increase the value delivered. And that's a thing, that's something that we really strive for. That is, every month we try to release features that have been you know, asked for by the majority of our clients. And every month we know that our, our value proposition is getting stronger. And that really helps us, um, uh, it helps us move up markets. We're now able to target larger companies that usually have uh, you know, complex uh, data sets. And it helps us, of course, achieve uh, higher average revenue per account. Okay. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. 
Reward will automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades, all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. All right. I also wanted to touch upon what you just said about the product roadmap and uh, how customers are shaping uh, the product for you. So uh, an, an, another um, another episode that that I did about it uh, was about the fact that you know there are customers, and obviously you have to listen to them and deliver what they're asking for, uh, especially if it's not just one customer or maybe not one big customer, because you kind of have to uh, listen to them, especially if they make a big difference for you at the early stages. Uh, but it's also about having like this founder intuition and product intuition and like really knowing where you want to go. Um, so what's prevailing for you? Do you know exactly what, you know, what you want to build and how it's going to look in like three years, or it's mostly just collecting user feedback and just putting in columns, like five people requested that and 50 people requested that. So what's your product roadmap? Yeah, it's kind of striking a, a balance. So we do listen to our users, but what we do is we try to listen to the problems and to the opportunities, not to the solutions. Like, you know, if a proper feature request made by a client is not something that we're going to, to, to consider in and of itself. We're going to try to dig and try to understand what's the underlying problem they're trying to assess. We can't really expect our users to build a product for us. That's not what they're here for. That's what we're here for. So we try to, you know, uh, collect the problems, try to make notes of all the problems and all the opportunities that are expressed by our, by our users. And then we kind of, uh, we build a roadmap by uh, putting those opportunities through a, a matrix, which is really basic, which is, you know, what's the impact going to be if we find a, if we deliver a solution to this problem, what's the impact business-wise going to be? And what's the, um, you know, what's the resources and the time that, that's going to be needed to deliver the solution? And if we see that you know there's something that's going to be massively impactful that doesn't require a lot of uh, a lot of development, of course you know that's a no-brainer. We're going to pri prioritize that, and then of course you know the core of uh, the the opportunities that we get from our users is, are going to be high impact but also high development time. And that's really where it takes a bit of intuition to try to uh, make a, a ranking, a, a real pecking order. Uh, between the various things that are uh, that are that are brought up by the users, because you know, if we listen to everything at face value, there's no direction. It's very difficult to give a proper direction to your roadmap. So you really have to, I think, have a vision. That three-year vision that you mentioned is something that's important, and then you have to use the opportunities that pop up from your user base to try to steer your way efficiently towards this vision. And it is easier said than done. And it is really difficult because you don't want to disappoint, right? You know, we were very close to our user base, especially the early, earlier ones. You know, we speak to them almost every day. Um, and we are like, okay, yeah, um, sure. You know, I, I'd like to deliver this ASAP for you, but that's not the way it works. You have to, 
you have to remember that you're operating with, uh, you know, constraints. Um, so it is a, a pretty fine balancing act. And uh, right now, I think we're pretty clear in terms of vision that we have for the product, you know, two years, three years wise vision. Uh, right now we're doing SaaS analytics. We're striving to move towards a fully blown financial planning and analysis tool for SaaS SMBs, which is something that doesn't really exist yet in Europe for a variety of reasons. Um, we see a lot of fantastic products uh, in the United States that are a huge source of inspiration for us. And it is also what the users are really clamoring for. Like, I want my monthly PL in a tool automatically. Like, I just don't want my MRR, my churn. All of that is super. I will pay X amount of euros every month for it. But the next step for you guys is going to be that. Okay, interesting. Well, you know, we're doing a product management MA if you'd like to come, you know, ask I your saw questions. that. Yeah, I'm definitely going to join. <laughs> next I think week, I'm going to need that. <clears throat> okay, cool. So I think our episode is going to be live on Monday and on Monday. You can also join the the AMA. So, you know, happy to, cool. to see you there. <laughs> Something else I wanted to, to ask you, um, because you keep uh, saying you have users and you have customers. So uh, where do you stand on, on the pricing strategy? Is there freemium? Is there, I don't know, are you asking people to, to pay pretty much right away? Do you do demos? How do you work with your white glove onboarding? So uh, can we dig deeper into the whole customer communication? Absolutely. Um, so we did consider freemium and, uh, you know, it is a pretty sophisticated product. So having a full self-served process where a user will just type something in Google, find our website, log on, connect his Stripe account, his bank account, then, you know, well, go through the tool. It's not something that has materialized yet. And we don't necessarily think that it's, it's something that's, uh, that can work uh, in Europe. We see it done in other markets, especially in the US. Um, we probably, you know, our hypothesis right now is that the European customer does require some degree of interaction when it comes to choosing and onboarding his or her, himself or herself on a, a financial tool and fair enough. Um, so what we have right now is a, it's a flat fee. It's a monthly fee. Um, that's going to change really soon, but uh, uh, we are still working on that because of course, pricing is an, always an ongoing discussion. And what you have is you'll have a demo with one of the co-founders. You'll have a free trial, which is uh, the standard duration is seven days. But if it takes you a bit of time to get your data uh, cleaned up, which does happen if you're not using Stripe or Chargebee or Penny Lane or Pro Abono, uh, which are the invoicing tools that we are uh, integrated with, then you know, you're going to work with uh, Google Sheet or Excel, which is fine. You can import those in, in FinCom, but it does usually, usually take some time to get that data all squared up. So if that takes time, then we can, of course, extend the trial periods. And then the idea is that you get to play with the tool, you get to get your first insights uh, during the trial period, and that helps the conversion towards paid. And there's really a key moment, which is really the, the key aha moments um, that we have to help our clients get to during the free trial period, which is, all right, we're going to sit, you know, we're going to share the screen, we're going to look at your, uh, your figures, your KPIs, and we're going to try to get you real actionable insights. And that's really the, 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 the funnest part of the job. That's the best part of the job. You're like, okay, 
Uh, I'll show you how the tool can really deliver value. And you always have, you know, this live discovery of, oh my God, you know, the churn on product X is super high. You know, what's going on? I, I, I didn't know that. Or, you know, my LTV for uh, clients that are located in Belgium, for example, is super high. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? So there's, there's, we really have to get to this point where, you know, they're sitting, they're looking at their figures in FinCom and they're like, you know, Eureka, I just discovered something about my business, about my performance that I was not aware of. And that is thanks to FinCom. So of course, I'm going to need that tool. Also, we, we try to help them understand just how much time they're going to save and, you know, how much Excel time, especially, you know, how much Google Sheet time they're going to, to, uh, to save uh, by using FinCom. But because, because that is also... Um, a core aspect of our of our value proposition, which is you know they're going to make better decisions based on better insights that you're going to you're going to get from your data, but you're also going to you know step out of Excel. You're going to stop you know computing your MRR in Excel, which in this day and age you shouldn't do that because you know life is too short for Excel. <laughs> Let's be honest, you know nobody likes Excel. Uh, it's super manual. Uh, I think you know ninety five percent of Excel models have mistakes in them. You know, if a CFO spends like half his or her time in Excel, you know, that's that is a waste of time, especially for, you know, basic stuff like MRR, like pick a tool, like, you know, save some time, spend more time, you know, spend more quality time with yeah. your family, just get out sure. of Excel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember um, I think the only time I, I had to work with Excel was was at the university and uh, they were trying to teach us like this sheets and sheets of formulas. And I was like, who uses that? Like, who needs that? So <clears throat> absolutely. Well, Excel boring is... Boring uh... P, guys. That's who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. You've been there, you know. Um, okay. Uh, so... Oh, well, I have been there. Yeah. Uh, I spent... That... I. Yeah, I don't know how many hours, but uh, yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Sorry. Well, now you have FinCom, so mm. you don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, something else that uh, that you mentioned was about um, customer acquisition, right? And I really, really want to dig a bit deeper into that because um, what could be or what are maybe what already works for you guys how did you um how did you realize that this is the market that where you're going to get your customers or this is the channel that works best for you right and um yeah and then let's talk about uh sales cycles a little bit but um customer acquisition channels first absolutely um so as mentioned, it is a sophisticated product. We are, are in a in a price range that really uh, drove us to try outbound before trying inbound. So, uh, and we did a lot of you know test and learn. And what we found that really works for us is kind of a multi pronged approach. So we'll do email campaigns, we'll do LinkedIn campaigns, and we'll try to have those running alongside a content strategy that and we try to make sure that the people we write to are seeing our content on LinkedIn, are seeing our content on YouTube. And what we find is, you know, if they get an email from us, if they get a LinkedIn message from us and they've seen our ad on LinkedIn and they've seen a post by one of the co-founders on LinkedIn 
and they see that you know we're organizing events uh, in Paris or we're organizing webinars, um, then you know it kind of builds trust in the brand and it really helps us yeah. uh, get that demo. And we get that demo by calling them. That's the final step. We have someone who calls them and who says, you know, we've been looking at your company. Uh, we know that you know you're you have ex employees, so we think you're going to you're going to be a great fit for us. You know, uh, we have this discovery approach where we try to ask them as ma as many questions as we can to try to understand where where they are, and um, you know, we try to kind of press on the on the pain points like how do you track your MRR? Do you you know are you able of uh, calculating your your LTV every month? If not, well, you know, let's talk because that is something that we can help you with. Okay, that makes sense. I like that you're talking about the value that you're you're able to provide to those companies, and um, the the demo is something else that I wanted to talk about because, as far as I understand, there are like three of you, three co-founders uh, that really that are really working deeply on the product. Um, do you do all the demos and? how sustainable is this strategy so basically at what point do you think you'll have to outsource this and you won't be able to to do just the three of you so the demo currently are done by mostly by vincent who's in charge of uh, of the, the sales um and when you know when his uh, calendar is full i can i can take over some of the demos and of course yeah the idea for us is that we are reaching a stage, I think we'll be reaching that stage really in the coming weeks where we're not able to handle all of the demos. So there is, um, you know, we're really putting the emphasis on training uh, our sales team to actually handle the demos. And that means that they have to be able to do two things, which are the capacity to have um, a really in-depth, educated and expert conversation on financial topics. And we train them a lot on all financial topics relevant to a SaaS founder or a SaaS CFO because they have to be relevant. You know, the the, the potential user who's speaking with them has to feel that you know they're in good hands. There's someone I'm speaking to who has a proper expertise, who's able to understand my problems, and who's going to be able to understand if the solution uh, can deliver value. And that's the first thing. Second thing, of course, is understanding the product, mastering the product in depth to be able to have uh, what we call um, an educated demo, which is, you know, we've done this discovery phase. We spent 20 minutes understanding the, the issues faced by uh, the prospect we're speaking to. So now we're going to show, show that prospect uh, the sections of the tools that really directly address the pain points. And every demo is different. Sometimes you're going to show very basic stuff because you're facing someone who's doing everything in Excel and everything's manual. And he's never seen a tool like this before. And sometimes you're going to try to address somebody who's trying to, you know, you know chop his top line uh, in several dimensions, and he's going to 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 use uh, the segmentation feature that we have in a really advanced way. So every demo is different, and we're training our sales team really hard so that they can be independent when conducting that effort. So let's talk about yeah. uh, the sales cycle a little bit, right? Because um, it seems like it's it's a product that you may not um, see maybe the um, the need for it for a while, like you said, for for companies that that generate less than seven hundred thousand dollars ARR, right or euro, uh, it doesn't really make sense. So you yeah. have to uh, not just have a good product, but 
um, be able to sell it at the exact moment when companies are looking for it. So how do you make sure that you're out there at this moment? And uh, how do you figure out when this moment is there for the companies and, and the founders? Yeah, absolutely. That That is one of the critical aspects of sales efficiency that we're uh, working on very hard. It's actually been uh, a major focus of the last three months. So it's all about segmentation. It's all about gaining as much intelligence uh, about your prospects as you can. So, you know, you have a lot of tools that are going to help you uh, understanding how big they are, how many employees, what's their revenue, so on and so forth. Uh, but the idea for us is to try and go deeper than that. And that is, well, do they have a CFO? What's the CFO's background or profile? Do they have investors uh, that they have to report to? We're trying to identify, uh, you know, relevant triggers. Uh, one of those is, of course, they, they've raised funds. Um, now they have a reporting they have to set up and uh, it's stressful. It's a stressful moment for them. Uh, we can we can help them uh, handle that. Another trigger is, well, you know, they have a CFO uh, that has joined the company in the last three months. That CFO is currently choosing the stack that they're going to use. And that is a relevant time for us to step in. So there is a pretty in-depth, uh, you know, segmentation and intelligence work that we have to do. And as you mentioned, the idea for us is to only pull the trigger when we think it's relevant to, because the people we're addressing, whether they're founders or CFOs, you know, they get 15 cold emails every day. I get 15 cold emails every day. It drives me nuts because, you know, sometimes I can't even get the name of my company right. And so we try to kind of stand out with this multi-pronged approach where it's not just going to be a series of emails. It's going to be, you know, a bit of everything. So emails, LinkedIn, some nurturing, some events. And it's not going just to be sales. It's, going, it's also going to be, you know, let's talk. We think we can, you know, just hopping on the call with us for 30 minutes, we know that we're going to be able to provide you with insights and that in itself has value. And, you know, if we can take it further, then we will try to. Um, so that's about that. Right. Okay. Well, uh, I think it's a great strategy and about cold emails. I mean, that's, that's my pain every day because I get called all kinds of things. Somebody called me a cool dog on an email and it was like, okay, okay. that's a bit too much, <laughs> but. Wow, I never got um, that. Now I want to get that. I'll forward it to you. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I don't know, people, people do not do their homework. Uh, but anyway, what do you think is the, uh, this channel that kind of a tipping point for your customers before they reach um, so something that makes them want to do the demo are those events. Is it maybe your, your new podcast that you're doing, uh, or, or something else? Um, honestly, we don't like, we haven't really been able to pinpoint, uh, uh, what's, you know, what's the tipping point that, that really converts someone to a demo, uh, we're still, you know, in kind of a test and learn mode. So we're trying a lot of things and we're gathering a lot of data. So hopefully, you know, by the end of the semester, we'll be able to, to really understand, you know, what was the, the main driving factor that really helped us convert 80% of our demos. Uh, right now, what we see is that it's really, you know, this multi, multi-pronged approach that's really doing the trick, um, because, you know, 
it helps build rapport. It helps build uh, some sort of intimacy with the brand, with the team. It's very important that founders be visible and take stands and express their opinions. Um, and it's really important to have a real tailored uh, communication, whatever the channel may be, whether it be email, whether it be LinkedIn, whether you're inviting someone to an event, you really have to make sure uh, that it's tailored and it's hard to do at scale. But then again, uh, when you look at the jump in conversion rates that it helps you achieve, it is worth it. Right. Well, an 80% conversion rate. Wow. I mean, congrats. That's something uh, that a lot of companies are trying to achieve. So it uh, seems like you're doing something right. Uh, so, okay. Uh, maybe Thanks. you could share uh, a hack that's been working for you uh, for FinCom when it comes to, to finances, you know, maybe uh, the way you're careful with your cash flow or um, the way you track your metrics. Is there a hack that you can share for other founders to use? Um, I mean, I don't think there's like one definite hack. I think it's, it's really about discipline. Uh, and it's really, a, you know, having the discipline to get the metrics uh, on a weekly or monthly basis. I mean, it's not a hack, but that is that is the best way of going about it, especially when it comes to monitoring runway. And we do try you know, to be careful because, you know, the, the funding scene being what it is, uh, we try to give ourselves as much time as we can. Uh, really discipline. And I guess, of course, you know, having the right tools, you know, having FinCom, huge help, you know, life hack. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, just having the discipline and um, just putting the processes uh, in place to get that data at the right time under the founders' noses so that they can make the decisions. That is really key. I think when it comes to finances, unfortunately, there isn't really like a definite hack. Uh, it is a tricky topic. It is a topic that requires a bit of time, a bit of discipline. Uh, also, of course, the right tools. Um so yeah, that's what we try to do at FinCom. Uh, we definitely have a very, uh, very specific reporting process. Okay, maybe one one hack is to leverage your accountant. Um, what we see, it's especially true in France, might be less true in other geographies, but based on my discussion with Dutch and German clients, it probably is. Your accountant is someone who has to be key in the way you approach your data and who has to be a key data provider. Uh, the accountant is a key data source when it comes to monitoring your business, because you know, you'll have access to your invoicing data, you'll have access to your cash data and your bank account. Everything else related to PL has to come from your accountant. So it's key that you can have a discussion with your accountant and you know define the reporting that they have to deliver every month. That is something we did that is a huge help, which is okay, I want my PL, I want the cost structure of my PL to have this and this, you know this cost bucket, this cost bucket, I want to track this margin and that margin. And that data, if you're a small company, it's going to come from your accountant because your, your accounting is not internalized yet. So your accountant has that data uh, in their system. And it's important that you define the reporting that you want. It also It's also important that you convince your accountant to deliver that data on a monthly basis. A lot of times we see that accountants work um, like on a quarterly basis or even worse on an annual basis. And you don't actually get any data from them except from your, your books at the end of the year. And that is really, really suboptimal. And that is, you know, if, if your accountant refuses to actually deliver something on a monthly basis, then he, he's not really doing their job. 
Their job is, of course, it's bookkeeping. Okay, it's uh, getting your taxes right. Fine, but it oh, it's also being your co-pilot when it comes to understanding what's going on in your business. Oh wow, I think that that's really important and uh, something that a lot of founders uh, could use. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. That's that's really insightful and actionable. Uh, and just a couple more questions, just be, because you, you mentioned the team, obviously, and the culture that you're building uh, and how you're trying as, as co-founders to present yourself to the company. And uh, what I see sometimes um, at VC-backed uh, startups, because you're hiring fairly fast, you know, the, the company's growing, the team's growing, sometimes it's difficult to um, establish the culture and make sure that everyone's integrated and everyone's understanding uh, the goals and the, what you're building together. So what's your approach? When did you start uh, basically like establishing, uh, realizing what kind of culture you want to nurture there? And what are the steps that you're taking? Mm. That is that is a, a very good question. And it is a critical aspect of building a company. I guess the first step for us, uh, when it was just us three uh, founders, uh, you know, before uh, we even raised funds, it was to get our values aligned and to write them down. Really, what do those values mean? And then how do we actually implement them? And the idea for us is that those values are the blueprint that we use to build the team culture and to you know build the you know the processes and the uh, the rituals uh, within the team and that's something that is it's uh, you know it has to be there has to be constant attention from the founders to make sure that what we put in place is aligned with those values which can be sometimes a bit tricky because of course you know values are very conceptual and you're trying to define you know what's your remote work policy is going to be so it's sometimes hard to to bridge uh, to bridge those two things but it is essential that you try not to steer too far away from those values and those values really have to be at the core of the way you build the team and of course that that's that's when you know you have to uh, be smart when it comes to implementing uh, you know processes you know remote work of course is a big topic um, we see a lot of companies being super flexible. We see a lot of companies that are actually starting to ask people to come back into the office because they realize that building a culture when everybody's um, remote uh, and you're losing, you know, the, 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 the coffee machine chat side of things is kind of hard. So again, it's a balancing act. Uh, it's a very interesting part of the job. Um, not something that we necessarily uh, were used to back in private equity. So it's a great thing to learn. And also, you know, we have a, great uh, you know we have a lot of great companies very inspiring companies that have built very you know super attractive work culture uh, with a lot of fun rituals you know a lot of really inspiring stuff that we try to uh, to steal basically <laughs> that's uh, i think it's the best you know uh we call it inspire <laughs> Abs yeah no so yeah get inspired, absolutely that's yes, the thing not stealing sure um but yeah that's the best strategy um okay and uh the last question is about the biggest win and the biggest failure so far maybe what you feel as a founder or the company mm. oh that's a tricky one um well biggest win i mean uh I'll speak for myself because I can't speak for the entire team, but 
biggest sure. win was of course getting to you know a, a team of 10 going from you know from just being us three to being a team of 10 uh from just having an idea not even an idea just having having you know identified a problem that we wanted to to address all the way to building a product that works that delivers value and that people actually buy um and getting into that mindset you know switching from the mindset of you know you're a private equity guy so you're a perfectionist uh, slaving away in excel and reading legal documents and being super detail oriented to well you're a founder now so you have to focus on the 80 percent that really matter you have to delegate you have to let a lot of stuff go um switching to that mindset well i mean of course it's not it's it's always a work in progress but starting to switch towards that mindset is a really big win in my book um it was really something that i was uh, looking forward to something that really stressed me out because it is difficult to let go of everything that you've been taught that you've learned in, in your professional environment for you know almost 10 years uh so that would be the biggest win in my book um also the team you know having that exactly. team you know this uh, collection of super talented individual that is the biggest win win uh now let's talk about failures um you know, you, you do have a lot of those, uh, a lot of clients that I wish we had closed and we were not able to because the product or, you know, the product didn't cut it yet or, you know, because we didn't really understand what was the underlying issue. So we were not able to to really bring forward uh, the way we could have helped them with, uh, with the tool. Um, you know, those are, you know, the... the the big disappointments that you have, like, oh, you know, you get an email. Yeah, we're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna move forward uh, after the try period. That always kind of, kind of deflates your, your, your morale. Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, in terms of massive failures, like, you know, we're optimists <laughs> as entrepreneurs, so uh, there are probably some, but I, I, they don't, they just don't necessarily come to mind. I try to think, uh, <laughs> not to think of them too much. Right, you raise them right away. So it never happened. No one has to know. <laughs> so uh, that's good, but that's kind of a normal life of any founder in any startup company. Some deals get closed and some deals don't. Uh, so, you know, the only thing I can do is wish you more deals that go your way. Um, but uh, Martin, it's been uh, it's been great talking with you. Uh, Martin also has a podcast now so we're kind of colleagues um and uh go ahead and find fincom on youtube i personally really enjoyed it martin and if um anyone in the audience wants to contact you how um how do they do their best oh uh, linkedin uh, i i answer almost all my linkedin messages uh uh yes. else you know on the website <laughs> you can start your free trial and if you do start a free trial you'll uh you'll you will reach out to you okay awesome well thank you so much for the conversation and for the great insights martin and like i said all the best with fincom thank you anna it was great it was great doing this discussion thank you take care bye-bye that was yet another awesome conversation on sas unbound we're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders, and if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. 
and obviously SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.